So my son Josh turns eight this month. He's halfway to his driver's license, if you can believe it. And if I had a loony for every time someone told me that he looks just like me, I would have a bag full of money by now. <clears throat> and I mean, people are right. Uh, he does look like me. In fact, if you put a picture of me as a kid next to a picture of him, uh, the similarities are, are actually pretty astounding. Um, my daughter is the same way. My daughter, Kenzie, is the same way with my wife, Jenny. If you put a picture of Jenny as a kid next to Kenzie, she looks exactly the same. It's not really that surprising. Kids carry the, the DNA, the genes of their parents, and so for them to look like them makes a lot of sense. You also see it as a parent in good ways and bad ways in the ways that your kids act. Uh, you're, you're very gratified when you see things like, you know, uh, hard work ethic and responsibility and telling the truth come out in your kids, and you like to think that's a reflection of things that maybe you possess. And then, of course, when the bad things come out that you can see uh, are a reflection of you, it's maybe not as exciting. But when I look at my son and I see him uh, getting really into reading, and my daughter, too, getting really into reading, I look at myself as a kid and even now and think, yeah, that's something that I really enjoyed when I was their age. And when I look at my son and I see how he likes to keep his room nice and neat and tidy and everything has a place, I think, oh, yeah, he's, he's reflecting my character there. When I look at my daughter and I see her enthusiasm for life and how she gets so excited about things and she's adventurous, I see my wife reflected in her. Our, our children reflect who we are because they're created in our image. And because they're created in our image, they carry certain qualities and characteristics that reflect us, but it also tells us that they belong to us. We are their parents. If I was at the playground, for instance, and another parent said to me, which kids are yours? I'd point over at Josh and I'd say, that guy who looks just like me, that's, that's mine. He belongs to me. Kids are, are born in the image of their parents. And Jesus is going to tell us today that we are born in the image of our Heavenly Father. And as a result, we owe everything to Him. In fact, that's the main point we're going to drive at today, is that those who belong to God owe everything to God. The image of God that's imprinted on us makes a great deal of difference in how we live our lives, or at least it ought to. So we're in this series called Find and Follow in uh, the book of Mark, the biography that Mark wrote about Jesus' life. And, and we've reached the climax of the story. There's a, there's a crescendo happening, working its way towards the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to reach that, that on, on Easter Sunday and Good Friday. But now we're, we're in the part of the story where Jesus has reached Jerusalem. He's told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And we've entered into Jerusalem, and there's been some conflict with religious leaders happening already. And the story that we read here today is a continuation of that. So we'll pick up the story in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. We'll read the whole thing, and then we'll look back over the details. <clears throat> Later, they, that's the religious leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're buttering him up. Then they ask, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, 
they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. We're going to look at this story in three parts. We're going to look at the question, we're going to look at the answer, and we're going to look at the implications. But before we get to the question, we just need to know a little bit of history that helps us understand the context out of which this story arises. So Jerusalem was a part of the the region of Judea. And this region was originally part of the promised land that God had given to the Israelites back in the Old Testament. Now, if you know your Israelite and Old Testament history, you know that the nation of Israel was split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. That included the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is now. Both of these places were taken into exile because of their unfaithfulness to God. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken off to Assyria and they never returned. The southern kingdom was carried off to Babylon. And a remnant of them eventually did return. You might remember stories such as the story of Nehemiah where they're rebuilding the city wall or Ezra rebuilding the temple from the ruins uh, that the Babylonians had left behind. So a remnant returned to Jerusalem and to the surrounding area, but they never really had full control over their own people. They were always under the thumb of someone else, mostly, by and large, for half a millennium. In about 60 BC, the Romans took over. And in about 37 BC, they appointed King Herod the Great to be the ruler over this area. He wasn't really a true Roman. In fact, they called him the King of the Jews because he had been raised Jewish, even though it doesn't seem like his Jewish faith made much of a difference in the way that he lived as an adult. So he kind of had this this, uh, role where he was connected to Rome. He was installed by Rome, but he was also the, the King of the Jews. He had this this influence over the Jews, even though they didn't really like him all that much. Now, King Herod eventually would die, and he separated his kingdom into three different places and gave his three sons rule over these three different regions. One of the regions was Judea, including the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he, He put his son Herod Archelaus over this region, but it didn't take very long before everyone realized that he was totally incompetent to rule the area. And Rome realized that they needed to step in and actually rule the place themselves. So Caesar Augustus issued uh, an an emperor, a ruler over this area, and at the same time imposed a tax on non-Roman citizens living in the area. This is the tax that they're asking him about. The tax was a denarius, which was about one day's wage. And it wasn't the only tax that the Romans demanded, but this is the particular tax that that the, uh, the leaders are asking Jesus about here. Now, When this tax came in, there was a guy by the name of Judas the Galilean. He was a Jew who led an uprising, a a revolt against the Romans because of this tax. Uh, He would say things like, taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery. You you can imagine him today saying, folks, this is a slippery slope. One day it's taxation, the next day they're taking everything you own and they're putting you in slavery. We, We need to draw the line right here. Now, there was a few reasons why they would have this kind of objection. First of all, if they took a, a denarius and they looked at the, the, the image that was on it. I mean, in our Canadian currency, we have Queen Elizabeth on, on the back of our coins. Now, nobody that I know of regards Queen Elizabeth as a deity, right? Nobody says all worship and honor and praise and, and glory are due to Queen Elizabeth. However, in the Roman day, the denarius had the image of Caesar on it. And it also had this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So there was a recognition right on the coin itself that there was a a deity being invoked here, that being Caesar. 
So Judas the Galilean and his fellow Jews were saying, there is a a graven image on here that they are asking us to worship by participating in their system. And we want no part of that. This is idolatry. And so we reject this tax. We reject this coin. That was part of what they were doing, as well as the fear of what the Romans might eventually do to them if they gave into this tax. So he called for a violent uprising. Rome heard about it, and they dealt with it quickly. They killed him, and the movement disbanded. You can actually read about it in Acts 5.37. There's a reference to Judas the Galilean there. So this is in the background as people are asking Jesus this question. It's about 25 years after Judas the Galilean and his uprising, and they're coming to Jesus with this question about the same tax that Judas had the issue with so, uh, so many years ago. So let's get to the question. The question that the Pharisees and Herodians uh, posed to him is about this temple tax. But first of all, these two groups were an unlikely uh, pairing of people to come to Jesus and ask this question. They actually normally were at odds with each other. The the Pharisees were anti-Rome. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans, whereas the Herodians were pro-Rome. They were pro-King Herod, pro-Rome, but they had a common fear of Jesus, The Herodians were afraid of if Jesus led another kind of uprising, what kind of political influence he might wield. And the the, uh, Pharisees were concerned with the religious influence that Jesus was exerting over the people and that he might actually be drawing people away from them. So their common fear united them. It's a, a case of an enemy of my enemy is my friend type scenario right here. They approached Jesus to ask about this, this tax. It was sometimes called the head tax or the poll tax. Uh, they, they were coming to ask about this coin that they were supposed to pay. Now, they're doing two things here. One of them is pretty obvious and one of them subtle. We'll talk about the subtle one first. If you look at the context of this story, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He flips all the tables. He condemns the religious system and he condemns the religious leaders. Then there's this conversation that they they question him about where do you get your authority to do these kinds of things? And and Jesus kind of gives them an answer and kind of doesn't give them an answer. It's it's a a great way that Jesus uh, dialogues with them. He doesn't always give straight answers to people who aren't asking sincere questions. Then he tells a parable which is very clearly condemning the religious leaders. And they know it. We, We see it actually in verse 12 of chapter 12. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they went away. So the context here is Jesus has just condemned them, and now they're about to try and retaliate. So you see in verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus to try and trap him in his words. In verse 18, the Sadducees take their attempt at Jesus. And in verse 28, one of the teachers of the law enters into the conversation. They're they're trying to trap Jesus, but more than just trying to trap Jesus, which is the obvious thing they're trying to do, they're actually trying to distract themselves from what Jesus is inviting them to do. Jesus has just condemned them over and over again, actually, through the book of Mark, but specifically in these last couple of chapters. He said, your heart is not in the right place. You're hypocrites. You're teaching one thing and acting in a different way. You're hurting people. You're taking advantage of people. You know, back in chapter 7, we remember Jesus said, you're too concerned about the outward rituals like washing your hands, and you're not taking a look at your own hearts. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm condemning you. And it's also coming with an invitation that if you would only have the humility to look within and evaluate Jesus' call and claim on your life, 
you could experience the peace that I'm offering you. But instead, they do a typical Pharisee type thing. And they start pointing the finger at him. They say, no, no, Jesus, the problem is not in here. The problem is out there. Remember we said that's a a typical Pharisaical thing to do? You know, if if only that person would get their act together. If if only the, the prime minister or the president or the public health officer, if only they would figure things out, then things would get better around here. But I'm not willing to look at my own life. This is a distraction. It's a political question, but it's really just a distraction. It's kind of like a a month ago or so, my son Josh had a a bowl full of Skittles. I don't know where he got them from, but he had a bowl and he was working his way through these candies and he left the room and I saw the bowl sitting there and I thought, I'm raising this kid and he lives in my house. So uh, I think a a daddy tax here is entirely appropriate and I, I had a couple of the Skittles. Well, about 10 minutes later, uh, he didn't see me. About 10 minutes later, I'm standing next to him and he looks at me and he said, Daddy, I can smell Skittles on your breath. You ate some of my Skittles, didn't you? And in that moment, I was like, "Uh, what are you working on right now? Let's talk about your homework. Uh, Don't you have some chores to do? Like trying to distract him from the fact that I had indeed eaten some of his candy. Don't look at my wrongdoing. Let's talk about something else. Politics. It's what the Pharisees and the Herodians bring up. Let's talk about politics so that I don't have to think about the state of my heart. Friends, we distract ourselves from what Jesus invites us to all the time, don't we? Jesus invites us to give everything to him. Jesus invites us to to invest and work in our marriages to address conflict, to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of our spouse. Or if you're single, Jesus invites you to give yourself wholly to that calling so that you can serve him in the way that he's called you to. Jesus invites us to sacrifice our money, to, give, to have an open hand with our bank account so that he can direct our resources for the good of the kingdom. Jesus invites us to to offer our career, our vocation to him, to to sacrifice uh, our own desires for where he would have us work and to view our jobs as a way to speak to others about the kingdom of God. He invites us into greater intimacy with him through spiritual disciplines where daily we will spend time reading his word and praying to him getting to know him, inviting him to speak, listening for his voice. He invites us to experience his forgiveness and then offer it generously to others in radical ways that will speak of the love that Jesus has for us. He invites us, some of us, to pick up everything we have and to move somewhere else so that we will experience the fullness of his calling on our lives. We experience Jesus calling us in so many different ways. We experience him calling us to confess our sin, to bring it into the light so that we might have freedom. And what do we do instead? We sit on our couch and watch Netflix and eat chips. We hear the call of God asking us to break through the mundane to, to break through into this glorious life that Jesus has for us, but instead we'd rather stare at our phones or play video games. 
we get so distracted by other things. Did, did you know that the average length of a human attention span these days is less than that of a goldfish? It's less than eight seconds. And yet Jesus is calling us to give everything to him. To hold nothing back. But instead our focus is on what kind of car we're going to buy or what kind of home renovation we might want to do or politics. How many political conversations have you had in the past year? How many times have you turned on Fox News or CNN or, or global television or looked online for articles talking about the election in the states or in our province? Or how much reading have you done around provincial health orders? And you Now, those conversations are fine, but if they're just a distraction from what God is actually inviting us to, which is to evaluate the state of our own heart and to surrender and sacrifice everything for the kingdom of God... It's just a distraction. This is what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing here. Don't look at me. Let's talk about something else. You know, Jesus, I know you want to, to, to talk to me about this sin that's going on in my life and, and convict me about that, but let me just watch this YouTube video first and, and then maybe we can talk about it. Jesus invites us to give our full focus to him. Those who belong to God owe him everything. And yet we get so distracted. So that's the first subtle thing that's happening here in this story. They're just trying to distract Jesus and themselves and everyone else from the real issues at hand. The second thing they're doing is trying to trap Jesus with this question. Jesus sees right through it, right from the beginning. The trap is this. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay this tax... He runs the risk of angering the Jews who would have said, but this is a graven image on this coin. It's idolatry for us to use this coin. Or angered the Jews who wanted another violent uprising against the Romans. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, he risks angering the Romans. And we know what the Romans do to people who they think are, are inciting a, an insurrection. Jesus could be risking his life by saying no. So they set the trap. That's the question. Should we pay this tax or not? Now, notice they're not saying, must we pay this tax? They're saying, is it permissible, according to God's law, for us to pay the tax? That's the question. So here's the answer. Jesus answers so brilliantly. Uh, in fact, at the end of the story, people are amazed. And we've read that a lot in, in, the, in the book of Mark. People are amazed at Jesus, but rarely or never have his opponents been the ones who are amazed. And this word amazed carries with it uh, more than just a sense of awe, but also a sense of bewilderment. Like, what just happened here? I think it's, like, if you've ever seen the movie Inception, um, by the end of the movie, you're kind of in awe at what you just saw. Like, the, the premise was, was really interesting, and the way that they put it all together was interesting. But then when you see that top spinning at the end, and then it cuts to black, you're like, wow, that was amazing. But what just happened? I don't get it. I don't understand. And that's, I think, part of how the religious leaders are feeling after this. Like, we thought this was a, a surefire way to trip up Jesus in his words. We, we thought we'd thought this through, but wow, what a great answer. And what just happened to us there? So Jesus doesn't have a coin on him. <laughs> there's, an, there, there's some interest in that detail, that Jesus doesn't actually have one of these. 
which implicitly says, hey, you know what, you guys, I, I've come to create my own kingdom, and, and I'm not implicit in the system of this world. Now, of course, Jesus uh, needed resources. I'm sure he made money as a carpenter, uh, and people who supported him needed to use money in order to buy food to support the ministry and, and, and everything like that. So Jesus wasn't completely outside of this monetary system, but at the moment, Jesus doesn't have one, and yet they do. He says, well, give me a coin, and they, you know, they reach into their pocket and say, well, yeah, here's one. It's almost like Jesus is implicitly saying, you, you've already accepted the terms of this empire. You already work with these coins. Now, some people see that as a judgment of the fact that they actually have a coin. Like, how could you hold one of these? I don't think the judgment is that they have one as much as it's a judgment of their hypocrisy. They're just trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to distract from the real issue. And Jesus is saying, you guys already have these things. And I think that that's true for us today, too. We do live in the world. We do live with a system of government. We do live within, you know, an earthly empire. We are citizens of the earth. And so we are called to participate in those systems to an extent. We are called to be good citizens. We are called to work for the good of the cities and the the nations that we live in. You know, Jesus says, be in the world, not of the world, but we are in the world. We are within uh, a system that's that's been set up. And submission to rulers is part of what God calls us to. Now, I'm going to say this again later, but we have to be careful about building a political theology from this story because it's not what Jesus is trying to do. But in other places like Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, we do read that submission to authorities is part of what God calls us to in most circumstances. You know, Romans even goes so far to say, if you owe taxes, then pay taxes. That's part of being a citizen of the land in which you live. So Jesus says, hey, you've already got a coin. He says, well, who, whose picture is on the coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's image on the coin. Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But whose image is imprinted on you? Whose image is imprinted on you? Right, Jesus is probably thinking here of Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating the world. Verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's almost as if Jesus is looking back and saying, The image imprinted on you is God's image. Just like my son looks like me, you have the image of God imprinted on you. And since you are imprinted with God's image, you ought to give your entire life to God because you belong to him. You don't belong to the empire of this world. You belong to God. So yes, there is something that is due to Caesar. But ultimately, everything about you is due to God. Because he's created you in his image. So there's Jesus' answer. It's brilliant because he kind of gets himself out of trouble. But he's also kind of vague in the answer. (laughs) Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Ultimately, though, you belong to God. So let's talk about the implications and we'll start there. 
there's, there's a misunderstanding that, that we could pull from this passage, okay? Lots of theological issues. We can picture like a road, and, and we want to have a right understanding, which means driving on the road. And there are theological errors on both sides of the road, the, the ditches on both sides of the road. They're theological error. One, one of the errors we can make with this passage here is to say that Jesus here is saying there are a, there's a, a kingdom of Caesar that is completely separate from the kingdom of God. And there should be no overlap. So as people who are a part of the kingdom of God, we ought to separate ourselves out from the empire. So don't pay taxes. Don't give to the government anything that, that they want. Um, you know, stay away from all secular music and secular movies and all of that kind of stuff. We just, we need to be separate from them. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus does not divide life into two realms, the sacred and the secular. This is David Garland. The, the things that are Caesar's should not be interpreted to mean that Caesar has control of the political sphere, while God keeps control of, only over the religious sphere. Obviously, Jesus would not consider Caesar and God to be counterparts. There is only one Lord of the world, not two. So Jesus is not saying there, there's a, a, a dichotomy here between the world and the kingdom of God. The other side of the road, however, would be the ditch of saying that, that church and state ought to be combined like this. That, that, that the government and the church ought to be, you know, in lockstep on everything. The church ought to be in control of the government, or the government ought to be in control of the church. We've seen through history how that fails and falls apart pretty fast. God is overall. So Jesus in this answer does say, no, there's not going to be a violent uprising against the political system here. In fact, uh, it makes me think of Jeremiah 29, when the Israelites had been taken into exile into Babylon, and they're in these foreign cities. What's God's instruction to the Israelites living in Babylon? It's not to rise up against your evil captors. No, the instructions are, hey, you need to build houses, you need to plant gardens, you need to be participants in this society, you, you need to pray for the good of the city because if it prospers, you will prosper. You need to be a, a good citizen of the country in which you're living. I think that God says that to us today too. You need to be good citizens of the country in which we live. But ultimately, your allegiance is to God. So there might be times when you need to stand in opposition to the state, to the government. And certainly there are times when you need to stand in opposition to the ways of the culture, the ways of the society. Because you have the image of God imprinted on you, and you owe everything to God. So some in that day might have said, give nothing to Caesar. Some in that day might have said, give to Caesar whatever Caesar demands. And Jesus here is affirming that the right response is actually somewhere in the middle. And it takes discernment in every scenario to know what our response ought to be. There's a danger here in interpreting this passage, especially in the day that we're living in now. You know, we're a year into government restrictions on religious gatherings. It would be possible for someone to take this text that we've just read and say, see, Jesus is saying our ultimate allegiance is to God and not the government, so we need to meet anyways. You know, let, let's rebel against what the government is saying because our ultimate allegiance is to God. Someone could take this very same text and say, see, Jesus says there are ways in which we need to submit to rulers in this world, no matter how evil they might be. 
And so we ought to abide by these government restrictions because Jesus calls us to. We're, we're abiding to the government like Jesus calls us to, and Jesus has called us to love our neighbors, so we're also submitting to God's leadership overall. <laughs> you could argue it both ways, which is why there's a danger here in trying to take it in one of those ways when Jesus is not answering that question. Jesus is not building a political theology here. In fact, if we get too hung up on the political aspect of what Jesus is saying here, we've actually missed the point. We've become Pharisees ourselves and ignored the invitation Jesus is giving us to give everything to him. Certainly the implications of that need to be worked out in each scenario of life and and in each situation we find ourselves. But it's not Jesus' main point here. In fact, he's not even answering, should you pay all taxes? He's not answering any question other than, there's this one tax that the Romans have imposed on us, should we pay that? That's the question Jesus is answering. There are some political implications, but they're secondary to the main point, which is if you bear the image of God, you owe everything to God. You are are more than a citizen of the empire. You are a citizen of heaven, which means that your focus ought not to be on earthly things, but on heavenly things, on the ways that Jesus is inviting you into deeper relationship with him. In fact, that's the whole mission of Jesus. He talks so much about the kingdom of God because there's a switch of allegiance that needs to take place, saying, I'm no longer a part of the, the empire of this world. I am a part of the kingdom of God. And all of my allegiance lies there. So friends, don't focus on the wrong things. And in fact, Jesus is inviting us today to evaluate where we are looking at the wrong things. And to turn from those things and to give him full control in our hearts. And it starts with a humble introspection. Yes, there are problems out there in the world, but the first thing that needs to be dealt with is what's in here. Colossians 3 will uh, wrap us up today. These uh, words from Paul, which follow up on exactly what Jesus is urging the Pharisees and the Herodians and us to do. Paul writes this, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul says, flee from things that belong to your earthly nature, things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, and idolatry, things like malice and slander and anger and filthy language and lying. Put those things off and instead clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and love. These are the marks of the kingdom of God. And then Paul says in verse 17, whatever you do, whatever you do, in everything that you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. God, thank you that 
it pleased you to create us as humans in your image. And because of that, we bear a great responsibility because we belong to you. Lord, help us to, to uh, develop the, the family resemblance to act and to live in such a way that, that mirrors your character and your love for us. Forgive us for the ways in which we, we try to distract ourselves from your invitation to go deeper. I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it, Lord, where we, we hear your voice, but instead we turn to other things, things that distract us and make us feel better about ourselves, but ultimately don't lead us to the freedom you offer. Give us the courage to heed your call. As we evaluate our hearts, would you highlight sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with? Would you continue to call us more and more into relationship with you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.